This is The Guardian. Today, as NATO members meet in Madrid to consider how to help Ukraine fight Russia, they're also thinking about another threat, how to fight off public fatigue with the war. Another day in Ukraine's grinding war and another Russian atrocity. A rocket attack in the middle of the day on a shopping centre in the central city of Kremenchuk killed at least 20 people and left dozens more civilians injured. President Volodymyr Zelensky called it an outrage, one of the most daring terrorist attacks in European history. Only completely messed up terrorists for whom there's no place on earth could strike such a place. It's not an accidental hit by missiles, it's a deliberate Russian strike. Russia launched its missiles the same day G7 leaders were meeting in Germany to find ways to help Ukraine. Today, world leaders are gathering again at a NATO conference in Madrid. One issue looms above everything else. I expect it will make clear that allies consider Russia as the most significant and direct threat to our security. But those leaders are trying to figure out how to fight other threats like a sense of popular fatigue with Ukraine's war and the pain of its consequences in the form of higher fuel prices, increased inflation, and in vulnerable parts of the world, higher food prices and growing numbers of people going hungry. For people committed to helping Ukraine defend itself, it's raising an uncomfortable question. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, are Western governments and the public ready for a long war in Ukraine. Dan Saber, you're The Guardian's defence and security editor, and you've just returned from covering the war in eastern Ukraine. Over the past couple of months, we've seen Russia fundamentally change its war strategy. It's no longer trying to quickly take over the country. That was a disaster. Instead, alongside lobbing rockets into Ukrainian cities, as we saw on Monday, it's mainly been concentrating its forces in the eastern Donbass region, where it's slowly taking territory inch by inch. What does that kind of war look like on the ground? What Russia's doing has been waging this sort of cruel artillery war. Uh, uh, It's inflicting fearful casualties on Ukrainian soldiers, maybe 150 are dying a day, maybe 600 are wounded. Um, I I met one wounded soldier, actually. He was on the front line in May for about a week. Uh, That was all he lasted. And he was subject to constant shelling uh, during the day. There was a sort of shell landing every 10 minutes. And when I said to him, yeah, but the Russians, so weren't they taking a lot of losses? Did you shoot at any Russians? Was there anyone to to shoot at? He said, no, we couldn't see them. They were shelling us from so far away. There was no one to see. Russia is 
pursuing an attritional tr- strategy where it's hoping to uh, there's no other you know way to describe it where it's hoping to sort of bleed its opponent into submission um, and there's absolutely a quality of, of World War one to this war because this is not a war that's being fought with air power it's not a war that's being fought with tanks this is a war that's being fought in this he- you know in heavy attritional way with this repetitive artillery shelling because Russia has worked out a way that it can you know, it can win, uh, or at least make, you know, at least make progress. And yes, progress is slow, but the reality is that Ukraine so far has no real ability to counterattack when Russia masses its forces in great numbers. And you visited a hospital near the front lines. How is morale holding up in the face of that kind of completely relentless shelling? Oh, I mean, incredible defiance. Uh, I met a Ukrainian soldier, um, another uh, injured veteran, a guy called Nikolai. First thing that strikes you is you walk in and you go, "My God, um, this guy's really old. He's sixty, it turns out. You, you know, you're just struck by his age immediately." And I asked him just straightforwardly, "Why'd you do it?" He just put his hand on his heart and 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 and, and just held it there for a moment and closed his eyes. In other words, it, it, there were no words, but he was saying, "Look, it was. It's a feeling. I'm Ukrainian." So the desire to resist remains very strong uh, despite the despite the human sacrifice but the question has to be if this is going on for months and months and months uh, you know will that desire continue so what you're saying is that in the east at the moment ukraine doesn't really have an answer for what russia's doing like we've just seen them lose the city of severodonetsk it looks like all of donbas could be lost at some point in the next few weeks or months so it appears that there's no end in sight for this war. But at the same time, it's not only people in Ukraine or Russia who are feeling its consequences. Can you explain the way in which the war is beginning to affect people all around the world, day to day? There's two big issues that are raised by the uh, Ukraine war for the rest of the world, um, uh, which are interrelated. Essentially, what you've now seen is, you know, Ukraine was one of the largest exporters of, of wheat and grain in the world, I think, supplying something like, I think it's 10 to 12 percent. When you travel around Ukraine, you just see um, miles and miles of open fields. It's fantastically productive land. But because of the war, in particular, Russia's blockade in the Black Sea, that most of Ukraine's grain uh, and food exports were maritime uh, and were destined for countries in East Africa and in the Middle East. What you're seeing is a growing pressure on food exports and, of course, relatedly on food prices. There's food, but hardly any customers. People here in Eastern Darfur simply can't afford what's on offer. Even before the war in Ukraine, prices here increased by 700%. This year, prices jumped again by another 200%. For millions in Sudan and across sub-Saharan Africa, the situation is becoming unbearable. At the same time, of course, um, the war has also driven up the cost of oil and gas, um, still with the, still an awful lot of Russian supply. And again, both those factors together are contributing to rising inflation, which you're seeing in the UK with 8 9% consumer price rises. And the impact of the cost of living crisis on those households is going to be, in some cases, fatal. And that's not a term that I use lightly. And the UK is not alone. This is causing pressure all around, all around the West. 
So the, 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 this is part, of course, of Russia's strategy. And, and, and don't be fooled, you know, Russia wants to, you know, screw up the West and, and, and cause as much international dislocation whenever it can. And this is just a classic example. And, 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 and from, a, you know, the Kremlin's point of view, this is a benefit, not a downside, I'm afraid to say, of the war in Ukraine. Okay, and as you mentioned there, one of the big reasons that all of this Ukrainian produce is just piling up, not getting to the places who really need it, is because of the Russian blockade of the Black Sea. Explain that to me. What is going on there? So I think one one of the things that perhaps got forgotten in this war is that, uh, uh, which has been generally focused on the fight fight on the land, is that Russia almost immediately took control of the Black Sea. Now, that's a, that was because Ukraine didn't really have a navy to speak of at the beginning of the war. Um, it had one, one frigate, which actually scuttled. In other words, it sank deliberately to avoid it falling into Russian hands. So Russia was immediately able to send out um, a number of modern warships into the into the Black Sea, into international waters, into its own waters, into disputed waters of Crimea, and effectively prevent merchant ships travelling in and out of the, the principal port that Ukraine holds, uh, which is Odessa. Merchant ships, ships holding grain, you know, uh, those tankers that are such a familiar sight around the world, cannot safely operate um, to to and from Odessa. They can't get insurance from places like Lloyd's of London. And although there's an awful lot of talk about ways that there might be found, an international solution might be found to this problem, and the reality is, I think, without some form of naval conflict in the Black Sea, I can't really see a realistic way that the Odessa could be opened up for grain exports. And this is a this is a big problem for Ukraine. This is a big problem. It's a big problem for the world. It's a big problem for the world, yes. And so, Dan, that economic pressure is certainly being felt around the world, but it's also being felt in Russia, right? Like this week we read that Moscow defaulted on its national debt for the first time in decades. Russia is undeniably feeling some pinch economically. Uh, there's a sort of extraordinary package of sanctions was announced by the West against Russia. But I think the expectation had been that the Russian economy would sink by 20% this year. I think it might be more like 5%. You know, Russia is still selling oil and gas on the foreign markets. You know, Germany still takes 40% of its gas on Russia, despite growing efforts to rebalance its, its, its energy mix. So, you know, Russia is still earning a lot of money through oil and gas revenues. And Dan, in these countries where people are feeling the worst effects of this war, I mean, literally going hungry, who's being blamed for those terrible impacts? Like, it's clearly Vladimir Putin's fault. He started the war. But is that how it's being seen? Not necessarily. I think... um, Russia enjoys a lot of support. You know, some say might say surprisingly strong support, but Russia has enjoyed a lot of support in large parts of Africa. I mean, of course, it depends which country you go to. It depends on local political circumstances. I, I recognise the the generalisation, but but Russia doesn't have a colonial legacy in Africa in a way that so many Western countries do. Often, that colonial legacy is far more unpopular. Uh, and, and weighs far more far more heavily on the minds of, of, of local politicians and local public opinion. So Ukrainian politicians have recognised this and actually been trying to go on much more of a lobbying effort. Uh, uh, President Zelensky himself uh, made a speech to the Organisation of African States a few weeks ago. I address you in a state of emergency, when we have a war, in an emergency for the whole world, when Africa is actually taken hostage. 
hostage of those who started the war against our state. Ukraine recognizes there, there is a, not just the international lobbying effort to be done with the West, please help us with sanctions, please help us with weapons, but there is a lobbying effort to be done, uh, uh, you know, in Africa in particular, where, where Russia, um, you know, enjoys a lot of, uh, a lot of goodwill. In Asia, and there are there are a string of other countries who have got a more equivocal attitude to Russia. Uh, Turkey is helping Ukraine a bit, but wants to maintain good relations with Russia. Israel, a strong, you know, a, a military power, is 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 pursuing a determinedly sort of even-handed, trying to stay neutral. But there are countries like Turkey, there are countries like Israel, there are countries like India. Those are a much tougher set of countries for Ukraine to turn. Dan, this mix of battlefield losses and growing global impacts that you're telling us about is putting a lot of pressure on Ukraine's supporters. The West has given Ukraine billions of dollars in weapons so far. Why are they not enough? What is President Volodymyr Zelensky asking for? What Zelensky wants at the, right now is they want rocket artillery. Uh, they want long-range artillery weapons that can reach much deeper behind Russia's lines than previously before. So Ukraine's artillery has probably got a previously had an effective range of, uh, uh, you know, 10, 20 kilometres. Uh, uh, this rocket artillery will have a range of up to sort of 70, 80 kilometres. And so you could, so Ukraine can place it, you know, further back on its battlefield and with a view to disrupting, uh, as I say, Russian concentration and massing in a way that it hasn't done before. Uh, the problem is that, that Ukraine just has finally managed to get some of these, but in pretty small numbers. So, the Americans have agreed to send four. Britain has agreed to send three. I think Germany's going to send three as well, although Germany is, again, very good at promising to send weapons, but very slow on the delivery, much to the frustration of Ukrainian politicians who are still waiting for stuff. Material promised in April, uh, uh, some of which might be coming only in July. Um, so this, this, these weapons will make a difference, but then the question is whether 10 uh, will make a material difference. And uh, Ukrainian presidential advisors have come up with all sorts of numbers. Uh, one said to me when I was in Ukraine, we need 60 to really start holding the line and pushing them back. Uh, another presidential advisor said we need more like 300. Uh, it's an extraordinary number, really, and would amount to about half of the US total stocks. Okay, so they're very big asks. I mean, Ukraine needs something that will just disrupt this dynamic of Russia showering its cities with artillery and then sending in troops. And today, Boris Johnson will be meeting other world leaders at a NATO summit in Madrid to discuss the progress of the war and the options they have to try to change its course. What are the things these leaders will be weighing up over the next few days? What's the dynamic going to be at, at, at this summit? I think the concern has got to be is what you will hear a lot of talk about and what you will see is a united front on Ukraine, a desire to stay the course, that Russian aggression cannot be rewarded, all this sort of stuff. We will recommit to the fight against terrorism, address the food crisis caused by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and consider our response to Russia and China's increasing influence in our southern neighbourhood. Above all, will reaffirm that the transatlantic bond remains the bedrock of our security. Europe and North America together in NATO. And you will see some kind of progress. There'll be new sanctions, perhaps on the sale of gold. There'll be fresh efforts to open up the 
food supply routes, uh, both through the Black Sea and alternatives to the Black Sea. Uh, there'll be further talk about about the supply of more weapons and particularly in greater perhaps rocket artillery that we talked about earlier in greater quantities, these kind of things. The the difficulty is for all that, um, a lot of these measures are either incremental and will make no more than a marginal difference or or very optimistic. So what you get is this sense that a lot is happening, but a reality uh, where there may not be that much happening or not much is happening is transformative. And maybe um, the West needs to think further about what kind of um, wh- whether it wants to contemplate a military ultimatum to, to, to Vladimir Putin, whether it wants to contemplate something like a no-fly zone, or, 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 or something which would just stop stop the endless sort of Russian artillery barrage and, 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 and the endless gains that are being made. And I think that the, the anxiety at the moment, and some of this is being felt in Ukraine, where they're worried about. Western uh, media fatigue, public opinion fatigue with the war. Everyone's got better things to think about. A loss of interest and a loss of pressure on Western leaders and therefore a loss of interest. So you've just got to, you know, what the West needs to do is sort of step up with a sort of heavy supply of cash and ammunition, if you will, um, often much heavier than is is being talked about um, publicly. Dan, as you say, we've heard a lot already this week at the G7 summit about unity between the leaders of the world's wealthiest democracies. And we're trying to probe that unity, get a sense of what its limits might be. So tell me about the differences among those countries when it comes to Ukraine. How much is their unity being tested? One of the big challenges is, you know, can the alliance supporting Ukraine, international alliance supporting Ukraine, hang together? And if you like, you've got two key groups and the most important swing voter of all. The, 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 you know, on the one hand, you've got a sort of hawkish countries of which the UK is a part, but also Poland, which has supplied more arms uh, than than Britain, the Baltic states, most former Eastern Bloc countries, although not Hungary, all of whom feel that, that uh, you know, Ukraine today, it could be them tomorrow, uh, and all of whom want to carry on supplying um, Ukraine with arms and, and support in a relatively, uh, a relatively high rate. Then you've got um, France and Germany, traditionally more cautious about antagonizing Russia. So th- the question then becomes, do, do the countries like this begin to act as a bit of a break on, on, on the overall coalition? I, I don't think that's been happening up until now. Germany and France have been standing fairly closely with the sort of uh, the UK and, and, and Eastern European countries. And finally, I mentioned a swing voter. The swing voter is, of course, the most important actor, powerful actor of all, which is the United States. It's not a swing voter right now in the sense that um, you know, Joe Biden and the US administration have been providing by far and away the, the, the largest amounts of ammunition and the most important supply of weaponry and equipment, but also always careful to do so, you know, jointly with allies. So if America supplies some rocket artillery as it has, so too does Britain, for example. But the question you have to ask yourself, and this is maybe a question, a medium term question, not a short term question, so I don't think this US administration is going to soften its commitment to Ukraine anytime soon. But the question is, what happens if you see a a, uh, a Republican president elected or, 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 or looking mighty like being elected? Uh, what happens if Donald Trump comes back into comes back into power? And without the US, there's not a lot 
that, that all of Europe can do in terms of weapon supply that will make a difference against a Russian invasion. And do you see any kind of political opposition forming in any of these countries saying things like, we're opposed to sending all these weapons to Ukraine or pushing Ukraine to cut its losses and try to negotiate a faster end to the fighting by, for example, just giving up the Donbass? Uh, you've seen these arguments being aired occasionally, most notably by uh, Henry Kissinger, who is still amongst us, um, veteran, um, former sec- US Secretary of State. Morgan, Henry Kissinger said that Ukraine should not be trying to deliver a crushing blow against Russia. He, he said that Ukraine should be prepared uh, to give up territory and warned that if Ukraine is not prepared to do that, what he said would play out would be upheavals you see them say that they've got to, Ukraine's got to accept some sort of partition, if you like, some kind of, um, uh, you know, further Russian occupation of territory, um, a bit like what happened after 2014-15, when, when of course, um, parts of the Donbass were uh, were occupied by the, by, by the Russians and Russified. It was allowed to happen as a de facto partition. I mean, I think that might be where we end up. And I think if you, if you talk to people in Ukraine, some people will talk about a kind of Korea scenario where, uh, where the country is effectively partitioned. And of course, there's never been an end to the Korean War, although I think the shooting stopped in 1953. Um, there's never been a formal sort of decorate, a peace deal, if you like, um, just a, a recognition of the um, de facto positions. So you could see a scenario where that might obtain, but... But nobody in Ukraine wants to admit that and nobody in the West wants to be seen to be pressurising Ukraine into that scenario. I don't think any West Western politician will be in a rush to follow Henry Kissinger's advice and kind of cut and run and pressurise Ukraine into a deal. Coming up, how long will public support for Ukraine last? And how much does that matter to Ukrainians? Dan, is there a kind of tension here, which is that people in the West and really around the world are beginning to struggle with the cost of living? And in some part, that can be traced to the war in Ukraine. But at the same time, Western leaders are meeting now to talk about sending weapons, sending aid, doing things that will will actually prolong the war. And I'm just wondering, at some point, does that tension get to be too much? Like, does the public start to say... Things are really tough at home and we prefer our leaders to be focusing on ways to relieve that pressure rather than on a war in Eastern Europe that might be contributing in some way to the pain that people are feeling. I don't think that's a tension right now. There's a question that maybe there'll be a different answer in a year to two years' time. I have to say at the moment, I think there's a very strong feeling, and I got asked this a lot in Ukraine because Boris Johnson was on, you know, was facing a confidence vote and there was a feeling that he might no longer be prime minister. And people said to me, if Boris Johnson, a very popular figure in, 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 in both in Ukrainian political circles and in parts of the Ukrainian public that follow the news, um, there, was a, there was a worry that if Boris Johnson was deposed, then would whoever come along be a strong supporter of Ukraine? And I think we know that in the UK, across political opinion, there's very strong support for Ukraine and, and across the British public. And why? Because because Russia launched an unprovoked invasion. You know, this is 2022. And, 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 and Vladimir Putin, an authoritarian leader, and everyone knows it, simply marched uh, marched his troops into Ukraine, bombed, it, bombed its 
cities, uh, troops engaged in, uh, uh, you know, in the mur- murder and perhaps massacre of civilians in, in, in Ukraine. This was an unprovoked illegal act and numerous war crimes have been committed already i'm sure so it's pretty hard to 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 say well do you know what you know for a quieter life let's let let, let's let them occupy some more territory because again as any ukrainian politician will tell you is they'll come again you know putin won't stop here and i think that's recognized very broadly Hmm. And I'm interested in how these questions sound to Ukrainians. Like, it's clear that, as you say, people still support this war and are sympathetic to the Ukrainian cause. But it's also clear that the amount of attention people are paying to the conflict is not what it was in the first few months. Like, my own social media timelines were filled with Ukrainian news. And now it seems like attention is shifting back to other stories, to everyday life. When you speak to people in Donbass... How do they feel about that? How important did it seem to them to have people overseas sort of cheering them on and following this conflict really closely? Uh, the, the Western support is, is considered to be massively important and people are very grateful for it, both uh, emotionally and practically. And um, uh, I don't know if the Ukrainian government or the presidency sends out kind of talking points to every politician and soldier and anyone you meet in any kind of position of authority, but they, it's amazing how often they'll say the same things. And they will, they said to me constantly as a British journalist, we need your weapons, we need better and more powerful weapons. Please send us, you know, uh, uh, you know, MRS rocket artillery, please, we desperately need your help. Um, and, and it's amazing how you get those you get those kind of messages. So people are incredibly grateful and people really recognise, um, uh, you know, and, and need it to continue, recognise they need it to continue and to continue in, in greater numbers. You, you know, I think one thing that's very striking in Ukraine is that um, a lot, not all, but a lot of Ukrainians had ties with Russia or Russian friends or Russian family members or the dividing line between uh, um uh, you know, Ukraine and Russia wasn't as wasn't as sharp as it is now. But since the start start of the war, uh, the the you know, for most people, there's an absolute visceral hatred of Russia. People will talk quite reasonably about about politics, about the world, and suddenly they'll talk about Russia, and it will become quite visceral. Um, I had people telling me, like the mayor of Kramatorsk. Um, uh, uh, Donbass city saying he had cut out all the, deleted all the Russian contacts from his phone book or 2,500 hmm. before he sent him a message saying, I have to say, I consider you personally responsible because without you, Vladimir Putin wouldn't be in charge. I mean, a bit hmm. much to pin down, pin on an individual Russian, but that's sure. the sentiment. That's the kind of sentiment. So what, what you've seen is, it, it is an, um, a massive acceleration of the very process that Vladimir Putin said he was trying to stop, which is an absolute severing of ties uh, um, with, with with Russia, um, personal, cultural, emotional. Um, people who spoke Russian in Ukraine are all trying to, uh, uh, often trying to learn Ukrainian, and certainly trying to use Ukrainian a lot more, um, and and feeling much more connected to the West, grateful for the West support and reliant on the West support, and they they they. They're very happy with that, and, and and but but follow developments very closely in the news. They they want to see that Western support continue, uh, uh, particularly in the field of arms, which is really right in the heart of the public discourse in Ukraine. And, and I guess as Western leaders weigh that support, decide how much to give. It's now clear to everyone, if it wasn't before, that 
this war isn't going to end this year or maybe even next year. You could talk to Ukrainian politicians and say, give, give us a load of weapons now, and if we can end the war in this autumn, then you won't have all the problems that will come with uh, uh, dealing with the winter. Uh, the problem is that barring an extraordinary step change in the level of Western supply and NATO, even NATO engagement, that's not what's ha- that's not what you're going to see. You know, if Ukraine is going to win uh, or, or or start to win this war or win it slowly, uh, uh, and either way, it seems to me that you've got a war that's going to drag on. Uh, it could well drag on into next year. And the most likely scenario for this war ending is 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 not with a sort of dramatic turn of events on the battlefield, I suspect, but but where the Russian offensive kind of peters out, or or, or the Kremlin allows it to peter out, and Ukraine is faced with a large swathe of occupied territory that it has no real ability to take back. Dan Seba, thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, Mike. That was Dan Sabah, The Guardian's defence and security editor. Thank you so much to him. You can read his coverage from on the ground in Ukraine at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Josh Kelly and Hannah Moore. Sound design was by Axel Kakutier. The executive producers are Phil Maynard and Elizabeth Casson. We're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.